Hey everyone, this is Kindle from the Recording Lounge podcast. So today I've got an episode where we're going to discuss what type of essential things does every studio need to keep around. I'll give you a little bit of backstory on this. So I was talking to a friend of mine who mostly uses his studio for uh, his own band, his own music, his drum videos and, you know, YouTube and all kinds of stuff. And, and he's starting barely to get into the point of recording with other people. Now, we talked on the phone and he was asking me, well, like, what type of things do I need to have around? Do I need to have guitars and amps, pedals? Like, wh what do I need to have around the studio for people to use? What is the responsibility of the client to bring and what is the responsibility or expectation that I have? And I thought this was a great topic to talk about on the studio because I know so many of my listeners range from the person who's just writing music at home all the way to professional studio owners. And a lot of people out there don't really know, there's not really a handbook for this stuff, you know? So I compiled a list of quite a few things that I think are bare minimum studio essentials that every studio should have, regardless if they're working with clients or working by themselves. Um, but these things will allow you to basically do what it is that we do and not feel like, you know, when people show up, you're empty handed, but also not feel like you have to just own everything that there is in the world. So I'm definitely biased towards my own experience here, but I have found that over the years working with tons of artists, tons of bands, that the type of gear or the quality of gear that bands bring into the studio is a complete roll of the dice. Meaning sometimes it was amazing gear, and sometimes it was terrible gear, and sometimes it was just a smattering, some good, some bad. A lot of times I find the sound that they claim to want or have is not really what they have. Uh, so since I am a big believer, and if any of you have listened to the podcast for a while or any of you that know me will know this, I am a huge believer that the source is and always will be king. The best sounding instruments and things that you can get, or I should say again, the, the right sounding instruments for the part, for whatever you're trying to do, and the room that you're in, the source is always king. It's always the most important part of the chain. The analogy I have given on multiple podcasts is, you know, there's no... A microphone or plug-in or whatever in the world that can make a Strat into a Fender sound like a Les Paul into a Marshall. There's just no, no, nothing that can do that like the source. There's no microphone in the world that can make an out-of-tune snare drum with a dead head sound like a really well-tuned snare with a brand new head. I mean, it's not even the same. It's just all about the source. And I know that I've tried to hammer it in as much as I can. And, uh, you know, I have a good friend who has told me in the past, he's like, you know, I believe you when you say that. But the longer I do this, the more I realize, wow, he was right. It really is all about the source. And that's frustrating in a way. It's funny because we're told all the time by books and forums and YouTube videos and whatever, all about techniques for recording and how to record a snare and whatever. But they don't talk about how to get a good snare drum sound at the snare, or they don't talk about how to dial in a certain guitar tone. 
They don't talk about how to treat your room for this type of sound or that type of sound. They don't talk about guitar strings or drum heads or tubes or speakers used in guitar cabinets. And it's ironic to me because these are the things we actually are recording. And do we know anything about them? I mean, I find that some of the biggest changes or upgrades in my sound over the years have not been gear upgrades. They've been my development of my ear to understanding what the source needs to sound like in the room to translate on the microphone and what the room itself needs to sound like to give the spaciousness or the depth that I want or, you know, all of the above. Now, I'm not saying you're not a real studio if you don't have any of the things on this list. I'm saying that if I walked into a studio and I didn't have any nice gear with me, I'd want to be able to lay down a track with something. You know, or if I brought gear, but I had an amp die, what do we do? If somebody brings in a drum kit to the studio and the heads are a million years old and they sound terrible and they don't know how to tune them, what are you going to do? Again, the source is king. Anyway, I just wanted to tell you this preface of I'm talking about this from the standpoint of being a full service sort of recording studio. I know there are lots of rooms out there that are like overdub suites or it's like a mix room, but you can record some stuff in there. I'm not necessarily focusing this to those types of studio owners. I'm focusing this to people who want to operate a studio to be able to record bands and artists and whoever and don't necessarily know what is my responsibility to have. So let's get on to our list. Uh, it's a pretty big list, but I think this will all be helpful. We'll all, you know, have some good considerations for each one. I'm not going to spend too much time on each one, but let's go for it. Okay, so number one should be probably the most obvious, which is you need a computer and an interface and a DAW. Now, I almost left this off the list, but I, because it's that obvious, right? I thought about putting it in the preface, but I thought I'd, it'd be important for me to mention about handling capacity of your digital rig. So if you're just mixing things or doing editing with the stray overdub here and there, okay, you probably don't need a crazy computer and a crazy interface and, you know, you don't have to have the fanciest DAW on the planet, right? I know a lot of people who write their own music at home and they've got a two or four channel interface, a MacBook and Logic, and it's completely fine, right? So it does depend partly on your function. However, I record bands and artists and I work with genres of all kinds. I use a Lynx Aurora N interface. So this is a Thunderbolt interface and it has 32 in and 32 out. And it's great, and I love it. I don't know if I would ever need more than 32 in or 32 out. I could see it, though, in the future. For the most part, I probably use mostly 24 in and 24 out. Uh, I upgraded to this from my old interface, which was a Black Lion modded Motu, and it had 24 in and 24 out, and I was pretty much maxing it out. And so with this, I have an extra eight channels, and I'm only using maybe two or three of them. So I think I've got like six unused channels, something like that, five or six, uh, at least on my inputs. And then I've got, I believe, another five or six unused on the outputs. 
So yeah, I, it's plenty for me to do what I do. I haven't had any problems with it since I got it. But I just want you to be aware that like, if you're working on big projects, if you're working on stuff with lots of virtual instruments or lots of tracks, your computer needs to be pretty solid to be able to handle all that. And when you're working with clients, you can't really have hiccups. I mean, obviously, you know, they're going to happen every now and then. Computers like to be finicky. Things are going to happen. But for the most part, your computer should be good enough to never be a distraction or slowing you down. And I know that's tough because every single year that goes by, plugins, we get more and more processing that we need to do. DAWs get more complex. Uh, you know, we want higher sample rates and better quality audio. We want to record more tracks. We want to do more and more and more. And processors get better, and so we upgrade those. And video cards get better, and RAM gets better, and hard drives get faster. You know, it is kind of a never-ending quest. I get that. But my point is you need to have a digital rig, a computer, an interface, and a DAW that will handle what you're trying to do. It is kind of the centerpiece of the modern studio. It's where everything ends up eventually. And so I can't exactly tell you what's right for you. If you've got questions on that, you can email me. But I would say always plan for more channels than you think you need. So if you think, like a lot of people will will ask me about this and they'll be like, well, I'd like to be able to record drums. So is eight channels enough? I'm like, okay, yes, you can record drums with eight channels, but what about that time you want to record with 10? Or what about that time a bass player says they want to record with the drummer and you can't do it? So if you think you need eight, I would go. I would buy 16. If you think you need 24, I would buy 32. If you think you need 32, I would buy 48. You know, like always go one step up from what you think you need and that will give you some room to expand in case of those extra situations. And I promise you, even though you might not think it, you might think, I'll never use that many. I mean, I was laughing about this to a friend of mine the other day. My first recording computer, um, my hard drive, I had a four gigabyte system hard drive and a 20 gigabyte recording drive. And I thought, I'll never run out of space. <laughs> and I go through an eight terabyte backup drive every year. So, <laughs> you know, I, I promise you, same thing goes for live snakes also. So like, you know, snakes that go to the live room or whatever uh, for tie lines. If you think you need a 16 channel, build a 24 channel or get a 24 channel. I know it's it's more expensive, but I promise you it's such a headache to upgrade that sort of thing when you need it. And if you don't have it in the moment, it's like, ooh, it's a real heartbreaker, to be honest, because you feel like my studio is not equipped to do what this artist needs. You know what I mean? That's a bad feeling to have. So that's my advice. Make sure that your computer, your DAW, your interface are all working for you. They're all going to be able to accomplish what you need and are going to be able to uh, record the things you need to record and have the number of inputs and outputs that you need. Okay, so number two a good mic collection. Now I know this is another obvious one. These first couple on the list are more obvious, but I just wanted to talk briefly about them. So what does a good microphone locker look like? In my opinion, I think you need to have a decent selection of microphones available from each type. So ribbons, condensers, and dynamics. But realistically, what does that look like? I would say you need at least a few dynamic mics like Shure SM57s, 
Telefunken M80s, Telefunken M81s. These are all killer microphones that you can use on snare drum, on guitar amps, you know, vocalists. I would also recommend having a couple of larger diaphragm dynamic mics like the Shure SM7, the RE20 from Electro Voice, the MD421. These are studio standards for a reason. I'm talking on an SM7 right now, and I have for most of my podcasts for the last, I don't know, handful of years. It's a workhorse mic. This thing is invincible. It sounds good on all kinds of stuff. The SM7 is also great on guitar amps. It's great on toms. It's great on bass amps. It's great on, you know, voice. It's great on so many things. So I would recommend, you know, maybe say five to 10 dynamic microphones. Just get a collection of them, enough to be able to do snare drum, top and bottom. You probably need one or two solid kick drum microphones. My two favorites at the moment are the Telefunken M82 and the SE Electronics V-Kick. Those are both really great, affordable, dynamic, large diaphragm dynamic mics that work really great on kick drum. And some of those sort of like, uh, you know, MD421s, SM57s, SM7s, RE20s, those types of things. None of these are crazy expensive. You don't have to go buy, for example, MD441s, which is a really fantastic microphone, but, you know, it's a $900 dynamic mic. A little bit unnecessary. That's something you could strive for in the future, but it's really not a bare minimum essential, right? I do think you need a handful of dynamic mics, though, for recording those sorts of things. On condensers, this one's a little bit trickier because condensers are such a wide palette. But I would say for bare minimum, I would recommend a solid pair of small diaphragm microphones. This will allow you to record overheads or cymbals or acoustic guitars or pianos. Um, there are a lot of great ones out there. One of my favorite sets of all time is the Telefunken M60 set. They make them in a cardioid pair, but they also make them with three capsules, Omni, Hypercardioid, and Cardioid. But there are other great ones out there. Uh, the Neumann KM184s are a classic. Uh, there's so many good ones, but I do think you need a pair of small diaphragm condensers. I also think it's useful to have a pair of large diaphragm solid-state condensers. So something maybe in the U87 territory or, or 47 FET territory or even 67 territory, but I think solid-state is important because those solid-state condensers are typically going to be a little bit lower noise than their tube counterparts, and they'll be able to handle a little bit more level than most tube microphones. So. I love solid-state large diaphragm mics on drums on the outside of a kick drum. I love it on bass amps. I love it on guitar amps. It's really great for loud vocalists uh, where you, you might want to use a tube mic, but maybe they saturate a little bit too much. They're great for stereo micing a piano. They're great for stereo micing a drum room. They're great for overheads. Again, these are workhorse microphones. Some of my favorites... I love the Sound Deluxe U195. Those are killer microphones. Uh, there are really so many in this category, it's hard for me to pick. There are also so many U87 copies. Warm makes one. Stam makes one. Peluso makes one. A bunch of really, really cool microphones out there in this category. Definitely do your research. I would go check out Audio Test Kitchen 
and listen to a bunch of different microphones. Oh, the Roswell Delphos I just heard recently. That's a really cool microphone. The Soyuz Bomblet and the O17 FET are both killer microphones. The Bach iFET is a killer microphone. There's, Like I said, there's a ton of microphones in this category, in the large diaphragm, solid state category. And I do think it's useful to have a pair. Even the Shure KSM32, I love that microphone. What a great workhorse microphone for not that much money. I think they're five or $600 new. You can find them used all the time for, you know, 400 450 Really awesome workhorse microphones that are full range, that are going to work and take a bunch of level and be able to work as a stereo pair or as, you know, like an outside kick drum microphone on a guitar amp, a bass amp, you name it. Now, when it comes to tube microphones, tube microphones are tricky because they can be quite expensive and they can also vary greatly on how they respond to level, how they distort, how their top end character is. Are they really airy? Are they a little darker? And I find almost more importantly how their upper mid-range character speaks. So some of them are going to have a little bit more, oh, 2-3K. Some of them are going to have a little bit more 4 or 5, 6K. Some of them are going to be really dipped at 6 or 7K. Some of them have a lot of like 10K and up, but they're kind of dipped in the high mids. And that's really tricky because it's so dependent on how it matches with a vocal. So with a large diaphragm tube condenser mic, I would say you that's the one you need to research the most and be the most picky about and think about what's going to work and be the most versatile. Me personally, the most versatile tube mic I own is the Sound Deluxe U99, no question. It sounds great on female vocals, it sounds great on male vocals, it sounds great as a room mic, it sounds great on acoustic guitar. It's just a really killer microphone overall. It's one of the few tube microphones I've ever owned that sounds equally impressive on male and female vocals. And I'm not just saying that on my own opinion. I have had clients tell me when we're doing shootouts, this one sounds special. I like this one. Male and female singers both have commented on this. And that's significant to me because, yes, I want to like it, but I also want my clients to hear it and say, wow, what's this one? I like that. And that's the one that has been performing for me really well over the last year or two. And I've used it on all kinds of stuff. And, and it really seems to have a clarity and a depth and a brightness, yet not harsh. You know, and I love it. It's really a fantastic microphone. That's the Sound Deluxe U99. It's about $2,500. But there are, again, so many microphones in this category, it's really hard for me to recommend just one. But if I had to, I would probably say that one for versatility. But in a major studio, you're probably going to see at least one of the big five, in my opinion. And those big five are a U67 style, a U47 style, a 251 style, a C12 style, and an M49 style. Those to me are kind of like the big five microphones that 90% of other microphones are copied after. Um, they're arguably some of the most significant tube microphones in history. And geez, just look up how many clones there are and you'll know. Again, I would recommend going to Audio Test Kitchen and listening to a bunch of demos. There are some really, really amazing microphones out there that 
come really close to some seriously expensive microphones. And for example, one that I think you should check out is the Perlman Church microphone versus the Telefunken U47. There's about a $6,000 difference, six or $7,000 difference between those two, which is crazy. And they sound both pretty great. <laughs> Uh, so that's just a great example for you to check out to see what I'm talking about is you really got to do your research because tube mics can be big money. And then when it comes to ribbon microphones, I think you'd be uh, really, really hard pressed to, to, to find me not recommending ribbons all over the map because I love them. But I would think realistically speaking, you should have at least one or two ribbon mics with different flavors. So this one's really tough because I don't, I'm not going to say you have to have a stereo pair of ribbon mics, even though I, I love stereo ribbons on room mics for drums. I wouldn't say it's a bare minimum essential. You could do that with other microphones. You could do it with stereo condensers. I'm not going to, it's hard for me to say you, you should at least have, but I do think you should at least have two ribbon microphones one that is a little bit more suited towards distant miking, a traditional sort of dark, fat ribbon mic sound, and then maybe one that's a little bit more modern and more suited to close miking. Good examples of this might be the AEA N8 or R84 for the distant miking and the AEA N22 or R92 for close miking. Me personally, I can't recommend the N22 enough to any studio owner. I think it's a fabulous ribbon microphone that bridges the gap of the traditional technology and the sort of modern usefulness of a ribbon mic. It's brighter and a little bit tighter in the low end than most ribbon mics, and it's active. So you can get way more gain without noise issues. You can drive long cable runs. You can mic an acoustic guitar and it doesn't get too boomy, but it's also not nearly as bright as your average, you know, small diaphragm mic. It's an amazing single mic on a, on a guitar amp. It's an amazing microphone in so many situations. I, I really can't say enough good things about it. And then another favorite of mine would be the Royer 121. Yes, it's much more expensive, but it's killer on guitar amps. It's great on drums, it's great on horns, it's great on all kinds of things, really. I really do love ribbon mics, so it's hard for me to not be biased on this one and tell you, you all need 20 ribbon mics, you know, <laughs> because I do love them. But I think for bare essentials, I do think you should have at least two. And they don't have to be a stereo pair, but I would recommend probably at some point thinking about getting a stereo ribbon or a stereo pair of ribbons for you to do room miking or piano. It, it, they can come in handy in a lot of situations. So this is what I would say would be overall a good mic locker. I know total that might be between 10 and 20 microphones, but if you want to be able to record all kinds of stuff, I, I do think that that's probably what you need. Now, there's a couple of oddballs. I also think it could be handy for you as a studio to own a lavalier microphone to clip on somebody's shirt that they, you can talk over video. Video is becoming a lot more common in the studio, and that could come in handy, as well as a shotgun microphone for the same purpose, for video or for voiceover or for any sound effects or things like that. The most common, I think, in the entire industry is the Sennheiser 416 
that's just such a common shotgun microphone that you see for all kinds of purposes. And it's a great mic. It is expensive, you know, but it's it can come in handy in those situations where you need one because studio microphones are not quite like that. They don't work like a shotgun microphone does. So they are really specialized, but when you need it, you need it. So I just thought I'd throw those in as a little bonus if you find yourself doing film stuff or video stuff or voiceover stuff. Number three, these are another, you know, set of things on the list of the obvious, but again, wanted to talk about them a little bit. Good studio monitors and good headphones. Now, I know that we've had plenty of discussions about acoustics, so I'm not really going to get into that on this one. Go to literally any of my other episodes to hear me rant about that, but I'm not going to do it on this one, I promise. But you know as well as I do, having great monitors is important. It's what we hear everything on. It's how we gauge how good something sounds. It's how we make decisions. But it's also how the client gauges your work when they're in the room behind you. Now, this is important. If you're working in the room with clients a lot, you need to have monitors that are loud enough to fill the room and not make it seem awkwardly quiet or unenjoyable for them. I know that sounds a little silly, but it really does matter. I uh, before I got these barefoots, I actually had a, the smaller set of barefoots. And in this particular room, because this room is long uh, and the clients sit way back at the back of the room, they would always tell me to turn it up. But, you know, to me, I'm like, wow, I'm pushing these really loud. The sweet spot is not as wide as it could be. So I found that when I upgraded to these, which are the MM27s, not only do they have a much wider sweet spot horizontally and vertically, but they fill the room much easier. And I'm not like pushing them to the max. I push them, you know, half and they're plenty loud. Whereas the MM35s, I was pushing them, you know, three quarters of the way and people are like, oh yeah, you know, it's kind of loud. Now, I didn't have that problem before because I was in a smaller room, but when I moved into this room, I knew pretty quickly, man, I'm going to have to upgrade these monitors within the next couple of years. Uh, so you need to consider that the size of your room and, you know, whether or not you have clients in the room will alter your decision of what monitors to get. And also, of course, how loud you want them to be able to be. You know, do you want to use them strictly for mixing or do you want to use them for, you know, rehearsals or for writing or for monitoring when somebody's playing bass in the room, you know? And sometimes people will have multiple sets of monitors for this reason, especially commercial studios. They'll have soffit-mounted speakers that are big and loud and they can fill the whole room. But chances are the person's not actually going to be mixing on those. They'll be mixing on the near fields or the mid fields, not the soffit-mounted ones. Whereas a mastering studio, for example... A lot of those guys will use one set of monitors and the room is tuned and designed to work with that specific set in that specific place and they don't use anything else. So just keep that in mind. Now, on the headphone side of things, I just wanted to mention that I do think it's important to have headphones that are good with isolation, but I do also think it's good to have some headphones that are uh, better sounding, you know, some more hi-fi headphones. 
Because, for example, when you're recording drums or acoustic guitar or anything where click bleed could potentially be an issue, you definitely want to use good isolation headphones. And my personal favorite are the ones that were done with coll in collaboration between Telefunken and Direct Sound. And so they're actually Telefunken branded. Direct Sound is, you know, they've had a long history of making isolation headphones. The thing is, I find that other brands of isolation headphones... They just don't sound as good. Like the Vic Firth ones, those they just don't sound that good. Uh, whereas the Telefunkens and the Direct Sound ones, they sound much better. Especially, I believe it's the EX29. But my favorite sounding are actually the Telefunken ones. I don't know if they use different drivers or or what, but they sound really nice. And and even singers comment how they like how they sound. But they isolate very well. You get very minimal click bleed. But if you don't need a bunch of isolation or if you're not worried about click bleed, there are better sounding headphones. You know, Biodynamic makes great, he great headphones. Uh, Sony makes great, head great headphones. I mean, there's so many out there. I, I can't even get into it. But just I do think it's important to have different kinds of headphones because sometimes you'll put a pair of headphones on somebody and they're like, these are uncomfortable. I don't like how they sound. I don't like how they feel. You know, make my ears hot, whatever. That's, again, another bad situation to be in. So me personally, I probably own 10 or 15 sets of headphones. The most I ever need at one time, maybe eight, maybe, you know, but I have a collection of them for people to use. If I had my way, I would really probably only have two. But again, if you're recording a live band with six people and maybe there's a video guy in the room and he needs to hear an audio feed as well, that's seven pairs of headphones. So I should also mention that you need to have a headphone system that allows you to make headphone mixes for all of these headphones, right? That kind of goes hand in hand with this. And I have always struggled with headphone systems because I just feel like there's a hole in the market for it. You can either go big and get a really nice expensive system or there's nothing really that's cheap and good. It's really tough for that reason. The way that I do it is I make all the headphone mixes on my links panel, which is zero latency, and I send them out from my interface into power amps. Those power amps are padded down and sent to headphone distrib distribution boxes in the live room. So the performer slash player slash, you know, instrumentalist, they cannot make their own mix. Now, at first, that would that would bother me, and sometimes for certain clients, it does bother them. But in the end, I find it it it's kind of a nice system of checks and balances because I've just gotten in the habit of checking their mix. So I'll play it back for them. I'll go in there. I'll listen to it. I'll check it and make sure it's in a good starting place. And I've gotten used to sort of where levels need to be. And so it works really well. And, and I have very, very few complaints of people uh, saying, you know, man, I really wish I could control my own mix. I find that, a lot. I mean, after all, they're hiring me to record and mix their music. So who do you think can make a better headphone mix? You know, I, I don't necessarily trust musicians to make their own headphone mix. Um, it's really overwhelming. And to me, it's really distracting for a lot of them in the moment to have to worry about, okay, which one is my vocal? And maybe I'll turn up the drums a little bit. Maybe I'll, you know what I mean? It's just one more thing to be distracting to them. And I would rather just make their headphone mix myself quickly. I, again, I, I very rarely have any complaints about it, but always open to learning new things on that department. I, I, I've thought about uh, expanding to a different type of headphone system, but for now, I'm happy with it. But you do need to have some sort of headphone system that allows you to get nice, clear, loud sound to the headphones. So I know that's tricky, but 
I think with enough research, you'll be able to find something that works for you and what you need. Okay, so now we're done with the obvious stuff. Like, obviously you need a computer. Obviously you need an interface, microphones, speakers, a DAW, right? Those are the obvious ones, but I had to talk about them because they're important and I wanted to give you some considerations on them. Now, I could probably go into the next most obvious one, which is microphone preamps. Now, how many do you need probably correlates in the same way of how many inputs that you need on your interface. A lot of people these days will buy interfaces with mic preamps on them. That's not my preference because I have collected analog mic preamps over the years. So I'm always looking for interfaces that have no mic preamps. It's a waste of my money. I don't want to spend money on preamps. I've already done it. <laughs> so that's why my Lynx Aurora is great for me because it has no preamps, nothing fancy. It has line inputs and it's amazing quality and clarity. A lot of great features on it. How many microphone preamps do you need and what kind should you have? Now, bare minimum, I would say four mic preamps. So there's a bit of a step up here where if you told me I want to be able to record drums, suddenly that number changes. If you want to record drums, I would recommend 16 because if you're recording drums, that means you're probably recording bands and musicians and artists, which means you might have the potential to record drums and bass together or a band who wants to record live together. 16 is probably going to be able to get most of what you need. But if somebody just asks, I have a studio, I don't want to record drums, What's the number of preamps that I need? And I would say four, because other than drums, I don't usually record more than four microphones. I mean, maybe in certain situations, I've recorded four or five on a solo acoustic guitar before, but one of those was a DI, you know? So I don't know if that really counts. It's like two microphones up close, two mics in the room, and a DI. It's like, okay, that's five. Uh, so there are certain situations where I might use more than that, but for 90% of things, for vocals, guitar amps, acoustic guitars, electric guitars, bass guitars, percussion instruments, strings, horns, anything you can imagine, 90% of the time, four mic preamps is going to have what you need. Now, if I took this step further, I would say I love the sort of preamp style that has EQ on it, the channel strip style, if you want to call it that. I sort of came of age with the Neve preamp thing and everybody was telling me that's what a real studio uses, you know, Neve 1073. By the time I got to work at a real studio and I got to work with 1073s, vintage ones, and I got to hear them and I got to work with them. And then early, early on when they started making uh, early plug-in emulations of 1073s, I got into those because that's what everyone said I should do. I got to the point where I actually really do like the sound, but I got to the point where I just knew it so well. I knew the EQ really well. I knew what I could get out of it. I knew how I liked to use it. When I finally started buying my own stuff, I was like, well, I know that. It sounds good to me and it sounds right to me because I've been hearing it all this time. So I got really heavy into the Neve style pre. Now there's a lot of Neve style pre's I like. A lot of them are great, and some of them are not as great for other things, whatever. But I also like really clean pre's. I love millennia pre's, and I love buzz pre's. I love my APIs, and I love my Pacifica. Uh, I really like preamps overall. And I should clarify that I don't think preamps make, like, a massive difference to the sound. 
yes, some of them are cleaner. Some of them are a little bit fatter. Some of them are a little bit brighter. Some of them are a little bit darker. Uh, Some distort more than others. Some have a nicer sounding distortion than others. But again, it's not as drastic as like a microphone change, like the difference between a, a large diaphragm condenser and a ribbon. Not that drastic, okay? We're talking about very subtle coloration change, and it's more about sort of what you're using them for. So for a lot of people, I recommend they get two channel strip style pre's out of those four. Um, You know, sure, if you want to get all four, but it is really, really useful to have, if you want to get into that game of, you know, with EQ and stuff, it is really useful to have at least two channel strip style because that could give you kick and snare, that could give you vocal, that could give you two mics on electric guitar, two mics on acoustic guitar, it could give you a bass amp and bass DI, because if you narrow it down even more, most stuff is going to be one or two channels. So, uh, you know, it could give you organ, it could give you room mics, it could give you... Yeah, so a matched pair of channel strips can go a long, long way. And there are so many good ones out there. Heritage makes a Neve style. Warm Audio makes a Neve style. BAE makes them. I mean, gosh, I can't even list how many 1073 copies there are. One of my all-time favorites, though, and to me it's a heck of a deal, is made by a company called AML. And uh, they're 500 series units, so you do need a 500 series rack to use them, but they're called the EZ1073. The letter E, the letter Z, 1073. And they're on sale right now at Vintage King for like 900 bucks. And that's wild. Like the fact that you could get a Neve mic pre with EQ that I have. And I can tell you personally, they sound great for 900 bucks. They used to be like 1300 and they've dropped the price and you can get it for like $900. That's pretty crazy. Now I know the warm audio and some of the other ones are cheaper, but they're really impressive units. The only downside is they don't have an output trim. So you can't easily get distortion out of them unless you use some sort of attenuator after them. You know, I have one, so that's not a big deal. If you didn't have one, I can see how that would be annoying. Uh, But yeah, just consider getting two of your four mic preamps uh, to be, you know, some sort of channel strip style because you can really get a lot of mileage out of that. Now, before I go into the next one, I just want to say I am not putting compressors or outboard EQs on the bare minimum essentials. I really don't think you need them. Um, yes, they are handy. Yes, I love them and I use them all the time, but I don't think they're an essential. Plugins have gotten so good these days that you can get great results in the box um, without having to rely on outboard gear. Do I use outboard gear because I think some of my pieces sound better than plugins? Absolutely. But can I make a record without it? Absolutely. That's why it is not on my list. You got to have mic preamps though, right? Like you got to be able to amplify your microphones or that you can't get them into your interface. Do you need outboard pre's? No. To me, this part of the question was more about how many, right? And so if your interface has eight preamps, you're fine. Don't worry about upgrading yet. You can do that down the line whenever you want. My main point was like, if you are starting from scratch, if your interface does not have preamps on it, Sure, consider getting two preamps with EQ. Uh, That can really save you a lot of time. But I would say at the minimum, you need four preamps. In whatever form they are, you need four. And if you want to record drums, you're looking more like 10, 12, 16. 
Um, again, I'm always an advocate for doing more than you think you need because doing one thing will open up doors to doing more things, you know? So if you have 24 channels of pre's, you, you, again, you'll say to yourself, I'll never use all of these. And then the session comes where you will. So those are my thoughts on mic preamps. Okay, so for the rest of this list, I'm going to remove some of the uh, obvious things. And we're going to talk more about uh, things that you need to have available for musicians to use. Um, some of them are instruments and some of them are just more obvious sort of studio essentials. So we're going to go down this list now. This will go much quicker, but these are all really, really important. Okay, so number one, a good tuner. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you know that I'm a big fan of Korg tuners. I also like Peterson tuners, but I'm a big fan of the Korg rack tuner. Uh, and I like using it uh, in the control room where I can have the bass player, the guitar players, everybody use the same tuner. There's like a hundred bucks on eBay, if not less. They're so worth it in my opinion. And I only use Korg tuners in the studio. So if people want to tune with, you know, basically anything other than a Korg or a Peterson, we don't do it. Um, and I do that so that everybody is using essentially the same algorithm of tuning, uh, you know, and so in theory, everybody's more in tune. I don't, I don't, you know, if people have boss tuners or pedal tuners or whatever, we don't use them. We all use the same tuners. Um, and that's, that's to keep an effort to keep people more in tune with each other because, Say the boss tuner detects the pitch a little bit differently than the Korg tuner does, which detects pitch a little bit differently than the TC electronic tuner does and all of this. So I'm a big believer in everybody using the same type of tuners and also don't ever use a headstock tuner. Okay, number two. Now I'm starting to get into the instrument world here. So uh, a lot of people will ask me if I have a studio, how many do I need to have guitars around? Okay. So I would recommend having two electric guitars as a minimum, and that would be one guitar with single coil pickups and one guitar with humbuckers. If I had to say a third, I would say something with P90s, but if you really just have to have, you know, two guitars, something with single coils, something with humbuckers, some of the best deals out there are going to be Fenders, um, you know, or... There's, some, there's a cool company called Pure Salem Guitars that makes some cool guitars on a budget. Uh, there are lots of companies out there. You don't have to go crazy and buy some $5,000 PRS. You really, really don't. Because again, part of the responsibility is, you know, yes, you have good stuff to use. You have something to use here. But I don't think part of that responsibility or expectation is that you have the best stuff here. You just have good stuff. You know, I think two electric guitars are going to be, get so much mileage. If you really can only have one, I would say probably the most versatile guitar would be a Strat with a humbucker in the bridge. So humbucker, single, single. Um, that's probably the most versatile guitar out there that I can think of in terms of the types of things you can get. With a bridge humbucker, you could do coil splitting and you could get, you know, the single coil bridge thing or you could get, uh, you know, the uh, humbucker thing or you could get the Strat neck pickup thing or you could get the, you know, the John Mayer position, you know, between the neck and middle. I, that can get you a lot of things with that type of guitar. But like I said, if I had to recommend it, I would say 
Get a guitar with humbuckers. Get a guitar with single coils. Don't go the cheapest route you can. That's pointless. Nobody's going to use it. Get nice stuff. Just don't feel stressed about getting top of the line. Okay, the next one, a solid guitar amp. I don't think you need to have a ton of amps at the studio unless you really just want to. Now, I've got a lot of amps because I'm a guitar player and I record a lot of guitar bands. And yeah, I do think if you really want to get into this professionally and, and do it full time and, and record a lot of bands, you probably are going to need to collect guitar amps. But I think at the bare minimum, you really just need one solid guitar amp. And to me, I can't think of a more versatile amp in the studio than a Fender Deluxe Reverb or maybe a Fender Twin. But I mean, a Deluxe Reverb is really hard to beat. It can take pedals. It can do clean. It can do dirty. You can do country with it. And I also think having a closed back 212 cabinet is, uh, is really, really important. Because I find through all of my recording years and all of my experiments with guitar, the, that's the most versatile cabinet. It can get you kind of that Marshall 412 thing with the right pedals, but it can also get you the real fendery thing. It's not too big. It's not too small. It's not too open back. It's sometimes the open back stuff, because if you had a deluxe reverb combo, it would have its own internal speakers. So you have your, your open back and then get a separate 212 closed cabinet that you can plug that into if you want to. That to me would be the most versatile, simple setup uh, that you could have without spending a ton of money. Um, now, if you can get an older deluxe reverb, I would recommend doing it. You know, silver face or black face deluxe reverb simply because they're easier to repair and work on and and that amp will last you uh, 50 years. You can be maintained and fixed and repaired and you can do everything you need to it from here on out. If you buy one of the newer ones, the reissues, those are going to have circuit boards in them and while they are fine sounding amps, they're much harder to repair when something goes wrong. And tube amplifiers are needy. They need maintenance every now and then. They need service. Stuff goes bad. Capacitors go bad. Given enough time, you know, almost any electric electrolytic capacitor is going to fail. It's going to start leaking DC. That's not a good thing. And it's not a fault per se. That's just what happens. Stuff ages, just like anything else, just like motors, just like any type of component. Given enough time, it will age. So if you can, I would recommend looking for a vintage one. I know it's going to be more expensive, but it will last you way longer. So yeah, a good guitar amp, uh, that will get you a long way to go. Now, if you're the type of studio that records mostly metal bands, I would probably recommend something like a 5150. It's probably the industry standard for metal music these days and has been for a while. A PV5150 in good condition, again, built like a tank. It'll last you a long time. And it's very standard for, for metal. But I'm just talking about sort of general studio. A deluxe reverb is a really hard amp to beat. So I do think you should have a bass of some kind. And to me, there is no better uh, example of a solid studio bass than a Fender P bass or a Fender J bass. I can't really complain about either. They're slightly different. A jazz bass might be a little more versatile, but I might prefer the sound of a P bass a little bit more. But if you get a decent American-made P bass or jazz bass, I think 
that will pretty much cover your bases, no, no pun intended, for most of your bass needs. Now, again, if you work with a lot of music that needs five string, for example, like gospel or uh, metal or anything that uses a lot of the low, you know, fifth string, then you might look into something like an Ernie Ball or Music Man, something like that, or an, even an Ibanez. Those can be uh, really, really great basses, you know, for not crazy amounts of money. I know that I, uh, some people, you know, when you hear the name Ibanez, some people are going to cringe and some people will be like, ooh, cool. It's kind of a, <laughs> it's kind of an interesting brand. Ibanez has like, t- you know, split its users over the years between people that think it's amazing and people think that it's like a joke. Uh, but they really do make some great bases for not crazy amounts of money. I don't think you have to spend $3,000 on a boutique Fender or a boutique Lakeland or something like that to get a good five-string bass. Me personally, I love the Ernie Ball Bongo bass. Uh, it is the ugliest bass I think I've ever seen, but it's an amazing five-string bass. It sounds amazing. It plays amazing. It stays in tune. It's got great intonation. And I keep it here at the studio. I love it. I use it. It works great. Okay, so do you need a drum kit? I think if you are planning on operating a studio and recording drummers and recording bands, I do think you need a drum kit. Um, Major studios usually have multiple drum kits. Now, for this one, I think you should be a little bit pickier, and I do think you should spend a little bit more money. I don't think just having whatever cheapo drum kit is going to cut it here. I know it kind of sounds like I might have been suggesting that on the guitars, but I'm really not. You know, I'm not suggesting to go get a $200 guitar and call it a day. We're still talking about potentially $1,000 per guitar. You know what I mean? Like, it's not cheap. And that a good deluxe reverb might run you $1,500 or more. So it's not cheap stuff I'm talking about here. I'm just saying you don't have to go full crazy and get, like, super valuable vintage one or super boutique one. So for drum kits... The house kit that I have at my studio is made by CNC. I love this drum kit. I, I really, really do. It's a CNC Player Date 2 that is maple mahogany. I had the bearing edges recut by Precision Drum Company in New York City to uh, be a little bit more to my liking. They're a little bit more rounded than I prefer. But there are so many good drum kits out there in that sort of middle-tier pricing Tama makes some, Ludwig makes great kits, CNC makes great kits, Gretsch makes great kits. I would really do your research and consider buying something that a lot of drummers are going to want to play. What you don't want is drummers to come into the studio and go, ooh, I don't want to use that. You know what I mean? So many drummers come into the studio and they see my kit and they go, wow, I want to play that. You know, that's a great, that's a great feeling. With so many things on this list, that's kind of the goal. You don't need to have 50 guitars or, you know, 10 drum kits or 30 basses. But what you do have, you want people to be inspired to play. Um, You don't want them to not want to play your stuff. That's why it's there, right? You want them to feel like they have options. They could play their drums or they could play your drums. You don't want them to be like, well, man, I wish I would have brought this if I had known your guitar collection was terrible. Or You know what I mean? So a good drum kit, I would put it in the mid-tier price. You know, another great option is Pearl. They have some really great kits in that sort of mid-tier two to $3,000 per drum kit. Um, me personally, my favorite sort of go-to generic sizes are a 24-inch kick drum, a 13-inch rack tom, and a 16-inch floor tom. With that, I think you can accomplish so much. 
if you record more metal, I might recommend a 22-inch kick drum. If you record more funk or hip-hop or jazz, I might recommend a 20-inch kick drum. But for most rock, I would recommend 24. I think it's going to get the job done. Uh, I really do love that size for a kick drum. And uh, not very deep either. I like a I like a shallower, like 24 by 14 or 24 by 16 at the maximum kick drum. I don't like them very deep. So, uh, yeah, that's a big, big topic. Definitely do your research. But I do think you need to have a nice kit. And, and on that, I would also recommend not just getting a kit that has a snare drum included. I would just get the shell pack that has the toms. And then I would buy a snare drum. Now, what kind of snare drum? Uh, it's killing me because there's so, so many out there. It's really, really hard to beat a Ludwig Black Beauty for recording. Six and a half by, you know, six and a half depth, 14 inch diameter. That is to me the ultimate go-to drum for recording. You can tune it up, you can tune it down, you can make it fat, you can make it cracking. It really is sort of the, the, the one, you know. Uh, I've got a lot of snare drums here at the studio. I think I've got nine right now. They're all slightly different, but man, I could not live without my Black Beauties. I have three of them. I have a, an eight-inch one, I have a six-and-a-half hammered, and I have a six-and-a-half uh, six unhammered Black Beauty. And I've got a five-inch Black Beauty on the way to me now. I just ordered one. Uh, they're really, really versatile, fantastic drums that work for almost any style. For cymbals, that one also is really hard. There are so many different types of cymbals out there, different types of weights. Um, I do think you should look into brands like Z like uh, Sabian and Zildjian and Meinl. I think those three are pretty reliable, at least in my experience. Peisty is good, but me personally, those symbols are really bright. And again, they're, I think, bright to the point where players would not want to play them. If players see Zildjian symbols, they're probably going to be like, oh, all right, Zildjian. Meinls are pretty trendy right now, and I personally really like them, but some players think they're too washy, too dark. I totally get that. Sabian makes a bunch of great symbols as well. Um, they make some more in sort of like the traditional Zildjian style, but they also make some a little more weird and sort of unique to Sabian. There's so many, I couldn't even list them. I would say I get a lot of use out of, for rock stuff or for you know, higher energy stuff. I really love Zildjian New Beat hi-hats. I love the Sabian HHX Complex hi-hats. I don't own a set, but I want one. They sound amazing. I have a session drummer that, that uses those, and they sound amazing. I like the projection crashes from Zildjian. Those are pretty bright, but they, they record really well. For ride cymbals, gosh, that's a deep, deep dive. <laughs> I, there's so many out there. I really like... Um, I like K custom rides. I like K light rides for washier and darker. I like the Minel Big Apple ride. I like the Byzance, I think it's Byzance uh, dark ride from Minel. I like the Bosphorus traditional, what is that called? Traditional, I don't remember what that's called. Bosphorus makes some great rides as well. I didn't even mention them. I mean, this is a really deep dive is what I'm saying here. It's like opening up an entire new world. But I do think you need a set of hi-hats, two crash cymbals, and a ride cymbal. In the future, you can upgrade to more. Again, it depends how deep you want to get into it. But 
I do think you need to get some reliable symbols that people are going to want to play. Do your research, ask questions, send me an email if you want to talk more specifics about that. But one last thing I would mention is kick pedals. A lot of drummers will bring their own kick pedal because they're really used to the action. I totally get that. But the one that I usually recommend to people is a DW5000. It's kind of smack dab in between the 3000 and the 9000. Most drummers are going to be comfortable with a DW5000 pedal. You know, maybe they play the 3000, maybe they play the 9000, whatever. But so many drummers play the 5000 and they're used to it. And when drummers come in, half the time when they see it, they're like, oh, that's what I use. And so they don't even care. But I would recommend telling drummers, feel free to bring cymbals, snare, kick pedal, anything you want. because. You want them to be comfortable. You want them to you want them to play their best. Okay, I do think you need to have a simple pedal board or at least a couple of pedals. You can use a multi-effects pedal like a Line 6 or an Axe Effects or something like that, but personally, I really only think you need a couple of pedals. A couple of distortion pedals, maybe a boost, a compressor pedal, a fuzz pedal, a volume pedal, a wah, maybe a whammy. I don't even think a reverb pedal is necessary because you can do that in the box. I don't think delays are necessary because you can do that in the box. Most people are going to have their own pedals and their own pedal boards. But I find that a lot of times I end up using my stuff because the player wants to use my amps. So they hear my amps and they like my amps, but their pedal board doesn't necessarily sound good with my amps. You know what I mean? So I do think it's important um, again, that is a deep topic I'm not going to get way into because there are so many pedals on the market, but I do think it's useful to have at least a boost, a compressor, a couple of drive pedals, a fuzz a volume pedal, a wah, maybe a whammy pedal, maybe an octave pedal. Um, if you really want to get into it, you could say a chorus pedal or a tremolo pedal, but I don't think those are essentials. I think at the very minimum, that list should suffice. I do think you need a couple of good DI boxes. Now, I have my personal favorites. I really love the Countryman Type 10 direct boxes. I love the Avalon U5 direct box. I also really like the Radial J48. I'm a big fan of active direct boxes, personally. I think they just sound better than passive direct boxes. A lot of people would disagree. That's totally fine. Um, but you do need to have a handful of them. I would recommend having at least four you never know when they're going to come in handy. They can come in handy in all sorts of situations. You know, you might think, oh, I've got plenty. I usually only use one at a time. Well, if somebody comes in with two keyboards, there's four channels. You know what I mean? I probably have at least six direct boxes. The Rupert Neve one, I have some radials, I have a couple of passive ones. I've got a lot of them and, you know, they all work. They all do what they're supposed to do. It's just, it's an essential thing you've got to have. So when it comes to synthesizers and virtual instruments, that one is a really hard one for me to tell you that you need because, again, it depends on the type of music that you do. But to me, one of the best deals on the planet is Native Instruments Complete. They have two versions. They have Complete and then they have Complete Ultimate. And either both of them are such crazy good deals. It, it's so nuts. Like for $600, you get... Pianos and synths and percussion instruments and bass instruments, and you get plugins and you get strings and you get all this stuff 
that you can expand later as you go. It's really a crazy good deal how much you get. Another one, if you're more into the synth side of things, is the Arturia V Collection. Crazy, crazy amount of synthesizers. I got it on Black Friday for 300 bucks, and they're all so good. That, to me, if, if you want to start building up your collection of that stuff, you really should look for those bundles because the bundles, especially like Black Friday deals and stuff, at least here in the U.S., I assume that I don't know if the Black Friday deals apply in other countries. Uh, I would assume they do. I don't know. Uh, some of my Australian listeners email me and tell me about that. Is it still, do you still get Black Friday deals even though, do, 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 do Australians celebrate Black Friday? I, I really don't know. I'm so sorry. I, I Please, one of my Aussie listeners, send me a message. Let me know. But if you can get some of those bundled deals, uh, you can definitely get some killer, killer prices on tons, tons of virtual instruments. Now, what type of keyboard do you need? I would recommend the bare minimum. If you are getting into that world, you need one that is synth action and one that is hammer action. So what I mean by that is you need one MIDI controller that is smaller, maybe a 49 key that is synth action, unweighted, quick keyboard. So this is great for synth playing, for organ playing, things like that. But then for pianists, people who want to play piano or Rhodes or anything like that, they probably want to play on a weighted keyboard. So I have both. I have the M-Audio Oxygen 49. That's such a standard. It's not even expensive. 49 key, unweighted, amazing controller. Super simple. No, I mean, it's so great. Uh, and then for my big one, I have a Yamaha. I don't remember the model number, but it's a fully weighted 88K uh, controller. And it's really, really great. Pianists tend to like it. It's It does the job. You know, there's so many out there. Again, I can't go into details about every single one. But if you do want to get into that world, you need probably a weighted and an unweighted MIDI controller. Now, some people would say, well, shouldn't you, you know, wouldn't you want to collect analog synth and stuff? And yes, you, you can collect analog synths. And in a lot of ways, I wish I had analog synths. But for me, it's more of a space concern. Um, I'm also not much of a keys player. So I've just decided, you know, I'm going to collect a bunch of virtual instruments. So I have a ton of virtual instruments from Spectrosonics and Native Instruments and Arturia and Spitfire, and I mean, the list goes on and on. I've collected a ton of those, and I've gone the MIDI route. Now, if you're a keys player, chances are you're probably going to want to collect more keys gear, you know, so naturally you would do that. I'm a guitar player, so I have more guitar gear than the essentials list, right? But if I was a keys player, I would probably have more keys gear than the essentials list, right? So just use your own judgment here. Okay, next, a solid acoustic guitar. This is another really important one if you record music that involves acoustic guitars. Not everybody will. A lot of people will record more electronic stuff or they'll work with more pop artists or they'll work with metal or whatever, and there's not much acoustic going on. But to me, I think the most standard acoustic guitar in the studio is probably going to be a Martin or a Gibson. Those are probably the most popular guitars in the studio. And something like a Martin triple O size, something in the middle, not too big, not too small, really records well. 
it's it's hard to beat in terms of versatility. It can do finger picking, but it can still do strumming pretty well. Uh, so that would be like the Martin Triple O eighteen or Triple O twenty eight. Both really great studio guitars. For one that's slightly bigger, the M thirty six, also known as the Quad O, so O O O O thirty six, is a great studio guitar. On the Gibson side of things, I love a good Gibson J45 or J50 or Advanced Jumbo. Those are all that sort of same body size. But man, what a really great guitar to have in the studio. Super versatile, can do strumming, can do finger picking, records well. It's nice and bright and clear. I do think it's important to to have one acoustic guitar. Now, Acoustic guitar is one of the most frustrating things for me because similar to drums or cymbals or anything like acoustic that makes it sound, you know, by itself, it doesn't need an amplifier, right? It's so, so highly dependent on the instrument itself. For example, one of my favorite guitars to record in the studio is a Martin Triple O 15. This is an all mahogany guitar that kind of sounds like crap, in a way, like it, it kind of sounds bad. They're not even that expensive. I think you can get them used for 700, 800 bucks. And this guitar kind of sounds like crap, but like I said, in the right context, it sounds incredible and it records really, really well. Uh, it, it has this beautiful woody sound. It's really focused and direct. It's not too pretty. Uh, it's not too, you know, and it's not like crappy sounding. It's just like a dull woody sound. But in other situations, it's terrible. So it's so hard because acoustic instruments tend to be very much like that. They tend to have uh, their their own little, you know, particular things about them that make them sound the way they do. And maybe they'll sound good in a certain key playing a certain part. And maybe, you know, they sound good when you play it, but you give it to another player and it doesn't sound good for them. I mean, they're just so picky and so particular But I would think that a Gibson J45, J50, Advanced Jumbo, or a Martin Triple O 18 or Triple O 28, I think those are going to be super versatile and they'd be great guitars to have around the studio. So uh, a couple of oddballs now. Um, I do think it's really important to have a myriad of guitar picks, guitar strings, capos, drum heads, headphone adapters, headphone extension cables, guitar cables slides, other cool guitar tools like, uh, you know, the Ebo or things like that. I think it's really important to have all of those around as well. And I think it's important to have tools like the string winder to change strings and clippers if you need to clip your strings when you're changing them. And all of the sort of basic essential stuff that guitar players already have, guitar players and bass players already have around. And like with drums, you got to have drumsticks around. You got to have different types of drumsticks. You got to have drum heads available, at least enough to change a snare head, at least keep a handful of 14-inch heads around for snare drums. Some cymbal felts and moon gels, you know, those little dampening pads for drums, Got to have moon gels around. You got to have that stuff. Got to have gaff tape around. You got to have paper towels around, not only for spills, but to dampen drums. I I know I haven't said it yet, but it should be obvious. You got to have mic stands. (laughs) You know, all the other stuff that I haven't mentioned, you got to have a lot of those little accessories, you know. You got to have mic clips, you got to have mic stands, you got to have shock mounts, right? You got to have mic clips and and you got to have 
guitar picks and all these other little things that if you're looking at something that a guitar player has or a drummer has, you probably need it. You know, you probably need all those little things. Drum keys. Okay. You got to have drum keys. I mean, you can't get away from it. You got to be able to tune up drums. And I don't mean one. You better buy a 10 pack because you will lose nine of them almost instantly. So, uh, you know, for guitarists also, you need to have extra tubes for amps. You need to have extra fuses for those guitar amps. Okay, what happens if you blow a fuse? Well, you replace the fuse and the amp will work again, generally. If you don't have a fuse, where are you going to get one? You know, sometimes the hardware store in your area has one. Sometimes they won't, okay? I order my fuses online from mojotone.com where they, you know, sell guitar parts and stuff. And I have them for every amp I own. I've got enough, I've got probably five or six one amp, two amp, three amp, four amp, five amp fuses to to handle all of my guitar amps. Um, Just kind of depends because they all need different ones. Man, there's so many things it's really hard for me on this list to even capture because I know, even though I've made a lot of things on this list, it's so hard to know uh, what I could be missing. I've got some more things here. On the computer side, you need to have flash drives that work with Mac and PC. So uh, that's super, super important. Flash drive or external hard drive that will work with both. Okay, you need to have long USB cables if you need to run, for example, to somebody's MIDI controller across the room, having USB cables that are long or having USB extension cables, I think is really helpful. You need to have MIDI cables. I know you might not have an interface with MIDI on it. So the next thing is a MIDI interface. <laughs> I the, Motu makes some of the most direct and simple MIDI interfaces on the planet. For a couple hundred bucks, you can get a MIDI interface that has, you know, eight MIDI inputs and eight MIDI outputs. And that'll be pretty much what most people will ever need in their life. So you got to MIDI cables. You got to have a sustain pedal for your piano. Okay. You got to have a sustain pedal for your MIDI controller. All these little things that I'm sure you have, I'm sure you get. Um, you know, you got to have guitar straps. You got to have guitar stands. I mean, geez, this list is just so, so long, but you really need to start thinking about it through the eyes of the musician. What are the types of things that they have? Are they going to have guitar strap? You would think so, but if you have one, then you save the day, you know? Are they going to have an extra set of guitar strings? Probably, but if they don't, you've got one. Uh, I always keep guitar strings and bass strings around. I always keep picks around. I always keep guitar straps. I always have that sort of thing. And I I know I'm a guitar player, yes, but I don't use them all for me. You know, Uh, if someone needs one, I'll let them buy some from me. If I have an amp that blows a fuse or, or a tube starts getting noisy or microphonic, I can replace it. There's so many potential things that can happen in a session and you just want to be prepared. Uh, So hopefully that little list of sort of miscellaneous things was helpful to you. I made this huge, huge list. I think I got everything. Obviously, you got to make sure you have tons of microphone cables and you need to have tons of guitar cables as well. Pedal adapters. You need to have uh, pedals. Well, we already talked about pedals. You need to have a drum throne. So a chair for the drummer to, to sit on. You need to have a nice armless 
chair for guitar players to play in. So this one is kind of a little bit of an oddball, but I think it's important. It's like uh, for when somebody's playing guitar and they want to sit down, they, the chair that they're in can't have arms on it. You know, it needs to be armless. Um, the chairs that I have in the studio, I really like them and they don't have arms on them. They're comfortable. And you got to make sure that they're not squeaky. That's another problem. I, I would go into the store and test them out to make sure they weren't squeaky. And every so often, I turn the chairs upside down and tighten everything to make sure they don't squeak when players move. Especially, you know, not necessarily when recording electric, but if you're recording acoustic and the person moves a little bit and their chair squeaks, that's going on your recording. Okay, some more in drum world. You got to have cymbal felts. I think I already mentioned that. Uh, extra drumsticks, brushes. Uh, some felt mallets, uh, those can be really handy for, for recording certain types of sounds, different types of washers and nuts. Okay, I'm talking more for like drum hardware. If you have some spares of like a hi-hat clutch that, you know, will hold your hi-hat, that can be really handy. You never know. Sometimes those things walk off. Extra uh, nuts for the tops of your cymbals, you know, that, that hold down the top felt washer. Let's see here. We've got other dampening tools such as big fat snare drums. This is a cool little product that you can put over a snare drum. It's basically like a drum head cut out that will dampen a snare drum really heavily and give it a, sort of a fatter, flatter sound. Uh, fatter and flatter. And those are cool. They're like $10. They work really well. There's also these other things called snare weights that are really neat. They're like a little leather type of thing. Um, let's see, what else do we have? More drumsticks, we got brushes, cajon mallets. Okay, that's a, that's a fun one. Uh, I really like these cajon brush things. They're like these big black uh, plastic broom kind of looking things. And that can be a cool compromise between sticks and brushes. Those can be really useful. Uh, shakers, tambourines... A Kessing. Okay, a Kessing is a weird little device that you can get for like eight bucks, and it's like this little metal fish-shaped kind of thing. <laughs> and you can use it for all kinds of things. You can use it as a sizzle on cymbals. You can put it on top of your snare drum and get a real trashy sound. Uh, it's kind of a weird little device, but that's useful to have around. Uh, let's see. Tape. I already said tape. Uh, lug locks. Okay. Lug locks. Uh, I really enjoy. These are these little plastic things that you can put on your drums. Once they are all tuned up, you can put these on the drums to help prevent the lugs from, from moving. Typically what happens when a drum, there's two reasons usually why a drum detunes. That's either, either cause the head is stretching or because you're hitting it and the rim when you hit the rim, essentially the tension rod sort of loosens a little bit because you're depressing the rim for an instant and the tension rod kind of uh, loosens just a hair. And you do that, you know, a hundred times in a song and, you know, the tension rod is now loose. So the lug lock is not perfect, but it can prevent a lot of that from happening. Uh, and they're super cheap. You can get a bag of them for a couple bucks and it comes with like 20 of them. Okay, uh, what else do we have? Cable ties and, and uh, Velcro cable ties. Okay, so we have normal cable ties, like the plastic ones. Those can come in handy just for, mostly for your purposes, for organizing things. But the felt or the Velcro cable ties can be useful as well for wrapping around mic cables and guitar cables and things like that. One thing I will mention is I mentioned headphone extension cables. I hate absolutely hate those headphone adapters that go from quarter inch to eighth of an inch. 
They always cut in and out. They're super annoying. To me, the absolute best solution, and you can buy these on Sweetwater.com, are these cables. I think they're made by Proco that are quarter inch to eighth inch cables, not adapters. They're actual cables, and they almost never cut out, and it's great. They work so much better than those little adapters that you just plug onto the end of your headphones. Do yourself a favor and go buy like 10 of those. I know they're like 20 bucks a piece, but it's worth it. I have a ton of them. They're awesome. They've never failed me. Every now and then I'll have one kind of cut out a little bit, but it might just, you know, I've gotten dirty or something. But, oh my gosh, those those little adapters that plug into the end of headphones, those things will drop aside or or have problems all the time. So, so annoying. They're never really tightly grabbing onto the headphone jack. Uh, it's just so, so annoying for clients. I had a session where I had a bunch of those fail and I had to go through 20 of them to find some that worked. After that session, I was like, I have got to figure out another solution. And I bought like 10 of those cables, those Proco cables, and they're awesome. I use them all the time. Uh, yeah, I think I've pretty much covered everything on my list that I wanted to talk about for your bare essentials. That last long list is really long. I think I covered everything on it. Essentially, you need to arm yourself with as many tools that you might be able to use for clients. I hope that this podcast has, you know, helped you think of some of those things, maybe that you didn't think of. I hope it's given you some insight into the types of things that go through my mind. Again, this is a service industry. I'm trying to provide a good service for my clients. I want to have as much stuff available as I can. They feel like they can use it and and get good use out of it, or they feel like they can use their own stuff. There are certain guitars and instruments I have that clients never touch. Given enough time, I might retire some of those and I'll put them inside my house or sell them on eBay or on Reverb.com. Because if people don't ever use it, if no one ever touches it, why should I keep it? You know, it's not relevant to me anymore. I want stuff that people want to use. I want stuff that people are inspired by. I used to have this cool guitar that I've had since I was like 15 and I kept it in the studio and nobody ever wanted to play it. Even though it sounded great, it like looked stupid to a lot of people. To me, it didn't look stupid, but to a lot of people, they thought it looked stupid. It's just this weird old guitar. And so I just brought it inside. No one wanted to play it. So why would I keep it out here? If no one is inspired to play it, then nobody will. Um, so you got to kind of take note of those sorts of things. And similarly with drums, you know, like I said, I don't want any drummer to sit down in the kit and be like, oh gosh, here we go. You know what I mean? I want them to be excited about what they're about to play. So you have to think through the eyes of a musician. I do think it would be wise to ask other musicians, ask your clients, what do they use? What do they like? Take a survey of what they use and what they like and see for yourself. A lot of the things I own, I own because I have had clients use them and I like them so much I bought one for myself. The 8-inch Black Beauty is a perfect example. I had my 6.5 Black Beauty and I was perfectly content. And I had a client bring in an 8-inch one and as soon as I got paid for that project, I went and bought one because I loved it so much. It sounded so good. Like I said, I have a session drummer who uses those Sabian HHX Complex hi-hats. 
They sound so, so good. And I want to buy a pair now, you know, I get to try these things out in the field, you know, and record them and go and listen to them when clients have them. So if they, you know, I, I still like using tons of my clients stuff, their pedals, their guitars, whatever. It inspires me. It makes me want to go buy things. And for example, I've had sessions where people will bring their pedal board and will use a certain pedal, you know, a certain drive pedal or boost pedal or whatever. And we're, we're all digging it so much and we use it on the whole session, on the whole song, like on every guitar part. It sounds awesome. And I'll probably go buy one because it's like, man, that, that was a cool, inspiring pedal that like really nailed it for that type of sound. So that's kind of how I view a lot of this stuff is I'm looking for things that are versatile, yet I'm looking for things that are inspiring and are reliable that people will see and recognize and hear and say, yeah, that will do the job. That sounds good. I think focusing on stuff that's too niche or like too specific or too unique is just not a good path. Um, because even though it's fun to collect weird stuff, I mean, I've got tons of weird stuff, you know, little, little tiny guitar amps and weird pedals that nobody's ever heard of and, you know, custom made stuff that no one's ever heard. But once they hear it, they're inspired by it, you know, and I still do have some of the standards. And when people say like, okay, because you never know what someone's going to walk in and, and want. I have people that come in and they say like, all right, I really want like a Vox AC30 kind of tone. Do you have a guitar amp that can get that sort of tone? Or do you have like a pedal that can, you can run into a Fender that can get you that sort of tone? Those are the types of questions you have to ask yourself. Am I equipped to get this sort of tone? Now, in certain circumstances, you could just rent one. You know what I mean? But you'd be surprised how many times bands walk in the studio and the sound that they want is not the sound that they have. You know, the gear that is required to get the sound they want is not the gear that they actually own. If this were the 80s or the 90s, chances are they would own it, you know, other than like newer, younger indie bands. It's just a different time now. So many more people are making music. Another weird thing that has happened is the disparity of price and value versus cost of living. You know, if you go online to buy a Les Paul and you live in New York City, it's virtually going to be the same price as it is for me. And the cost of living in my hometown is much lower than New York City. Through the Midwest or through the South, the cost of living varies greatly. But if you live in San Francisco, that cost of living is high again. You know, if you're in Canada, it's going to be a little bit different. Like, it's just strange. Some people can have the same gear, and to some people, it's expensive gear, and to other people, it's average. It's just strange with the internet. The internet has really kind of distorted value and price and those sorts of things. It's a really fascinating thing for me. Anyway, I hope this podcast has given you some things to consider, uh, some things to keep around your studio. I do think uh, if I had to add any other things to this list, uh, non-music things, I do think it's important to have a couch. I do think it's important to have some nice, comfortable chairs. I think it's important to have lamps. I think it's important to have candles. I think it's important to have lighting that is adjustable. I think it's important to have coffee and water and tea. I think it's important to have maybe some like cough medicine or, uh, you know, just over the counter stuff, uh, cough medicine or something, uh, throat lozenges, you know, for if you have a sore throat. I think it's important to have just some basic allergy medicine around again, over the counter, some band-aids, basic first aid stuff, right? Like just normal things you would probably have in your house. 
I think it's important to have, like I said, tape, uh, gaff tape for all kinds of purposes, taping cables down or for, you know, putting on drum heads or, you know, all kinds of stuff. There are so many things I could put on this list because owning a studio is is a very big undertaking. It's It's different than just engineering, right? There are so many little things to consider. And some of these things you wouldn't even know until you're doing it yourself. And you will find yourself saying, man, I really wish that I could do X, Y, Z. I really wish I could do this. I keep a notebook of that sort of thing. So ideas for my studio, for improving my studio, I keep a notebook full of those ideas. And when I think, you know, I'd really wish I had a way to isolate guitar amps. What's the best way for me to do that? Should I build an ISO cabinet or should I put the guitar cabinets in my attic or should I, you know, what should I do for that? There are all kinds of situations like that. I didn't even, I didn't even mention that because, you know, you might not need an isolation cabinet for your guitars if you have two separate rooms like I do. It really does depend on your specific studio. I would recommend, highly recommend paying attention to your space and your needs and your clients and writing these things, these things down. I really wish I could do this. This would save me time. This would benefit my clients. This would help me get sounds faster and easier. This would help my session be more efficient. This would improve my workflow. Think about those things. Write them down. Even if they're conceptual, even if they're, you think they're off the wall and nobody's ever thought of them before, sometimes you'll be surprised and you'll search online and you're like, oh, they make something that does that. Exactly what I want. For me, I have built things before when I thought no one made something like that, only to find out that... They do make them. There are all kinds of little situations like that. Creative little ideas in that uh, I highly recommend you write them down because you will forget them. Write down, write down your ideas for efficiency and, you know, client comfort and things that clients want to use. Talk to your clients. Talk to other studio engineers. Talk to your friends. Talk to me. Send me an email if you have questions, comments, thoughts, episode suggestions, all the above, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us. I hope this episode has been helpful. Send me an email with thoughts and questions and comments. As always, I look forward to hearing from you, and I'll talk to you next time.